Welcome back to Pastor Potluck. I'm Court Green. And I'm Peter Constantian. And today, after... We didn't do it last week, did we? Mm-mm. We took a hiatus last week. But we are we are back and we are going to be talking about... Well, we're not really 100% sure. We're just going to kind of see where this goes. In the lectionary, there is a selection from Ruth. And it's not a complete... Like you read it through. It's not, a com- it's not an intact pericope. It is two different sections... One being uh, three through three one through three five, and then four thirteen through seventeen. So when I read them, it's like they censored the passage. Did you did you go look at what we're skipping? Because I haven't seen it yet. Why don't you read it and we'll find out? I'm, I'm gonna read what they have. Yeah, I'll read the whole thing. No, no, just read what they have. Okay, we'll uh, we'll leave the rest shrouded in mystery. Oh, okay, all right. So uh, this will be a fun experiment today. We have done zero planning. Well, maybe like like. Point one to planning. <laughs> they just need to believe yeah. it. They probably already think we don't do any planning. <laughs> All right. Here's the reading. Ruth, again, Ruth 3, 1 through 5, and then 4, 13 through 17. Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, I need to seek some security for you so that it may be well with you. Now here is our kinsman, Boaz, with whose young women you have been working. See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Now wash and anoint yourself and put, your be- put on your best clothes and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he finishes eating and drinking. When he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. She said to her, All that you tell me... I will do. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When they came together, the Lord made her conceive, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without next of kin. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her bosom and became his nurse. The women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse, the father of David. That ends the creepy, creepy reading. (laughs) Creepy. Why do you say creepy? Because I know what feet means. Okay, okay, well, that's see, now getting back to what I said. It seems like they censored something here. But anyway, they didn't really. The, the most scandalous part is right here, the feet. The feet. Tell us about the feet. The feet, that's genitals. Well, yeah. Okay. That's probably genitals. Yeah. So here's, here's why I say that. Okay. Because there is no, in, in Masoretic Hebrew, mm. there's not wording that you find in the Bible for gonads, mm-hmm. okay. Um, nor is there for coitus, <laughs> and so they have euphemisms for all this. He laid with her. Yeah. Well, you can lay down next to people all you want and not get them pregnant, uh-huh. right? So right, we right. know what that means. But feet, like in this story, could very well mean this. Feet when the cherubim are flying around and they got these extra wings covering something yeah. could mean that. And also feet in the, the the weird story of Moses versus the crazy desert night demon 
when Miriam cuts off their kid's foreskin and puts it on his feet only makes sense okay. if it is, you know, it's foreskin. I mean, that's where it comes from. And it, so, so, well, what about in Leviticus where it talks about uh, oh, a man having a, uh, what is it, a secretion or something like that and being barred from the... The temple. I guess they don't even use. They the don't word. use the word. They don't yeah. use the you word. You just got to figure out what it means. Interesting. Context. 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 So we're left to guess, and if you guess that, mm-hmm. and it's a very good guess, then what you're talking about is husband entrapment by impregnation. Really, the way that reads. I mean, in a in a time period where there is no birth control correct to sleep with someone is to run the risk of having a kid Well, not a risk in this situation conceiving and and, here's the other reason i think this is creepy and it's not fair to the bible i will admit that off off the bat Mm -hmm. and it's not fair to the understanding of time Mm -hmm. and times uh i think i can safely say that both of us are feminists but this is not the world that we're used to. This is a world in which a woman is left with nothing when their husbands die if they don't have sons to take care of them. And so they are desperate to get this girl married so that she has some kind of income. Yeah. It's social security, essentially. There's some, uh, there's some hints at that early on in the book of Ruth about exactly how vulnerable uh, Ruth and Naomi, Naomi are. Uh, they're, like, they're what one of my professors would have called bare life, uh, which is how he describes refugees. Uh, refugees flee from one place to another, and their basic need is citizenship. Mm-hmm. Their basic need is some country to say, we see you and you have rights as a human being mm-hmm. and we're going to acknowledge and protect those rights. But in, um, in this period of time, which Ruth, the, the book opens with the, with the line, in the time that the judges ruled, mm-hmm. um, there was not a lot of security to go around anywhere. You heard Naomi mention it, I have to get some security for you. Uh, especially for... Uh, a Moabite Mm -hmm. immigrant in Israel or uh, a widow with no possibility of bearing more sons. Extremely vulnerable, the two of them. And and so I like to say everyone has choices, but not everyone has good options to choose from. Uh, And this is a situation where they had very, very few options to choose from. And this is, you know, if, you know, I, I'm preaching this on Sunday. I don't think I'm going to go into the whole feet. Is it feet? Is yeah. feet genitals? Is it sex? Is it not sex? Yeah, I'm not going to be preaching on that the the juicy parts of this passage per se, but but rather just on on highlighting the fact that nothing seems to go wrong here in a situation where Ruth was putting herself in a very vulnerable position. Uh, luckily, it seems that Boaz acts with dignity, whether or not they 
uh, consummated the relationship that night. We don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the story of Ruth seems to just get go from worse to better and better and better. Which is usually not the way it happens. Usually not. She generally does not do that. Go ahead. But it makes it great material for uh, Sunday school ser- um, lessons and children's sermons. I mean... If you take the feet out. If you take the feet part out. Okay, yeah, gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you just allow the innuendo to stay as it is and not try to dig into that at all, um, then it's a, like a lovely, beautiful story, you know? But is that the whole story? I, I don't think so. But I think it's very layered, and I think there are stories within the story. And I think for one thing, you can see it as a commentary on this refugee status Mm-hmm. like you were talking about earlier. Another thing is that it's really a critique on the system. It's not so much that Boaz is the hero, but he wasn't a bad guy either, it doesn't seem. Um, he just is. Mm-hmm. Versus the system in which they live, where that's the way that you find a husband and get married, sneak up on him in the dark. Whether or not they did anything, That that's in there. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if that's the the way, but that happens to be maybe the only way that Ruth could find a husband. In that moment. And and Boaz, not a hero per se, but he does stick his neck out to some degree because uh, if you remember from the story, he's not next of kin no. uh, for Naomi. So there would there is another individual I, I don't remember his name but Boaz has to approach him at the gate and ask him are you going to invoke your right and he declines we don't know why he declines yeah. I wish that the scripture would say because he was uh, xenophobic and didn't like Moabites well it could have been that or it could have been uh, you know if you think about other stories of kinsmen's redeemer they often declined maybe he was already now married. there's more people to share the inheritance right 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 there's, there's many possibilities. We don't get that level of detail. It's a lot easier just to live in a Western world, isn't it? <laughs> when it comes to understanding the laws and stuff. Maybe it's easier to live in whatever context that You're we grew up to. in. That makes sense. Because learning another one is very difficult. Yeah. But we get some hints. So what I want to talk about is how Ruth contrasts with Judges and the book because it opens with during the time they were ruled by judges. Yes, during the time they were ruled by judges. And I don't know the timing on when Judges was written, but what I've read is that scholars say that the book of Ruth was written in the post-exilic period. Mm-hmm. Same time that Ezra and Nehemiah are coming back, rebuilding the walls in Jerusalem. And to be honest, it was a very xenophobic time. And you can go look in Ezra chapter 9 to talk about how disappointed Ezra was to see that people had intermarried with Moabites among mm-hmm. other people. They actually broke those marriages and in some ta- in some cases killed the Moabites who were part of, we assume, happy or at least sufficient relationships. Yeah. Married relationships with his with uh, he, with the Hebrew people. I don't want to pollute the line. And that was the that was this that was this uh, anxiety, this fear. Don't want to pollute the well I think the fear, what do you think the fear really stemmed from for the people in that period? There's there's a lot of financial entanglement involved in it. Okay. Uh, you know, if we're going to work hard for this promised land and it'll bear fruit. We want it to be our fruit. Mm. There's also just the, the idea of being a chosen tribe mm-hmm. and 
it's done so much harm in so many places, not just among the Hebrew people, but among all sorts of people. There always seems to be someone claiming to be chosen. Mm-hmm. And when when you have that mentality, then you have this this purity complex that you want to keep the line unsullied. Mm-hmm. This means a lot. This matters a lot to me because I'm a descendant of refugees from Armenia, mm-hmm. um, and during the time of the Armenian genocide, there were there was this fear amongst the the Turkish people and the the ruling party at the time it was a secular government called the Young Turks uh, that they were going to somehow since the Ottoman Empire was collapsing they were somehow going to lose their identity Mm -hmm. and the proposal that was submitted was we need an ethnically pure Turkish nation Uh, and so that led to the actions that many have called a genocide against the Armenian people and not just them but other groups the the Kurds for example Mm -hmm. who are in within the bounds of what was hoped to become an ethnically pure Turkey we see this going on other places in the world too um, thinking, thinking of uh, uh, Somalia. Somalia is a good example. Um, I was thinking of um, Uyghurs in China. That one, and it's, uh, it's Mi- very sad that we have a plethora of choices. Myanmar yeah. uh, slash Burma. Um, yeah, and so so whatever the source of fear is, somehow it motivates those in power uh, to to a campaign of of ethnic purity or mm-hmm. ethnic cleansing. Uh, it's scary stuff, but it's real. And that's what was going on at the time that the book of Ruth was written, but it was written about a previous time. And so where we find Ruth in Scripture is right up against Judges. You finish reading Judges, and then you read the story of Ruth. Mm-hmm. And so this is a letter, I would say, on behalf of some minority voice in in post-exilic Israel to future readers to say we weren't all uh, xenophobic yeah we not all of the relationships were broken in fact there's one very important relationship that wasn't broken and it led to David and it led to Jesse and David yeah so what do you think about that? Because to me, that's amazing that this book even shows up in the Bible and right next to Judges. To me, it's like they're offering us these two understandings of the same period of time that both have very different messages for exactly who the Hebrew people were like at that time. So I think that it's interesting as well, and one of the reasons is I'm like a like a Bible freak, like not the every word in it so much as just how it came together and all this. And I love that mm-hmm. that we have two images of the same people because our temptation, and thank God that the Masoretes and others weren't like this, but our temptation is to look at any differing views in the Bible that it has with itself and to just tidy them up. Mm-hmm. Like if you think about like look at any quarterly I don't know what Methodists call quarterlies, but your your literature. Yeah. Like especially the kids stuff. 
especially around Christmas time, you're going to take certain parts of Luke and certain parts of Matthew and get one cohesive story because hmm. we want a tidy Bible. But they didn't do that. The people that com- compiled what became the Bible, they didn't do that. They didn't tidy it up. So we have like two creation accounts. We have Job and Jeremiah. They aren't exactly the same even though they're telling a similar story. Mm-hmm. And so I like the honesty of that. And because of that honesty, presenting you know an Ezra Nehemiah that really, really wants to preserve the heritage and gene, not is it genealogy yeah of of the people and then yet also the bible gives us this story that says well maybe that's not so important because you don't have david without this mm-hmm. and also for christian readers you don't have jesus genetically the, the human side of jesus side of jesus right but we're we're talking about without a culture this. so yeah there is a genetic purity drive i think well let's 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 critique that a little bit because i think as far as I'm under, understanding genetics, that's not something that this people had a concept of. Okay. Heritage, lineage. I Heritage like and lineage, for sure. Family name. Right. But uh, but it is, I mean, it's important to note that Europeans are very focused on genetics and um, and that we've inherited that uh, in the U.S. To such, to such an extent that we think that, like, what your genes say, that's who constitutes your family. But in Jesus' day, and, and perhaps in, in generations even older than his, uh, who constitutes your family is who you're with, yeah. who you make your family. Yeah. Uh, so that's why like Jesus my- gets to claim the line of Joseph, because that's who he was with. That's the culture and the tradition and the legacy in which he was raised. And for a modern-day example, my last name is Green, but really not. Mm. By Western standards, mm. it should be Helderman. Because genetically, the guy my dad thought was his dad turned out he found out when he was 52 wasn't his dad. Mm. And so, Grandpa Frank Helderman is out there. He's dead somewhere. Uh, and That you know of. That I know of. Uh, dad didn't know him either. But mm. anyway, so that's an interesting way of looking at it. So, there's, you know, we, we talked about it. Mm. He's like, should we like change our last name? I was like, no. Yeah. And, I've never met any of those people. Right. And so it makes sense what you're saying. That one side is, is who you're with and the other one is what made you. Right. So Yeah. That's interesting. So getting back to Ruth, uh, they followed that line of thinking. Who are you with? Mm-hmm. She needed to be with someone. Mm-hmm. She found Boaz. And that's where Boaz becomes her- heroic because they didn't have to accept her being with him. Mm-hmm. He could have rejected her, yeah, and it could have potentially been a death sentence. Mm-hmm. And I wonder who the Ruths and Naomi's are in our lives that need our acceptance as a lifeline, mm. and do we even see them? Yeah. Well, I mean, this is something that I think, uh, you know, as a culture, we're fascinated by, and we oftentimes end up on one side or the other. I mean, this is a Romeo and Juliet story. It's a, it's, a, it's a story about a relationship that shouldn't have existed between people who are enemies. But didn't end tragically this time. But didn't end tragically, yeah. And Romeo and Juliet, not a good ending. That ended tragically. Yeah. This doesn't. Yeah, and that's an important thing also that contrasts with the book of Judges. Nothing seems to go wrong in this book. Except that it's 
but but we don't. Except the situation at the outset. We might not know except yeah except for the uh, the. I guess it's drought, famine, in a land called Bethlehem, yeah. house of bread. Uh, and they have to go back to their sworn enemies, the Moabites, to seek bread, even though the Moabites didn't give them any bread when they were wil- in, traveling through the wilderness on their way to, Jer- or on their way to Israel and Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. It's like age-old grudge right here. Um, but besides that, there's no bloodshed, there's no violence. I El- Elimelech and his two sons die of sickness or natural causes. I don't know exactly what. It's it's not violence. And if you only look at Ruth, you'll think, oh, this is a beautiful and lovely story. But to see how exceptional it is, you have to zoom out and you have to read Judges, too. Mm-hmm. You have to read about the bloodshed and the genocide and the violence that happened in, in that book. The over and over again. It, People getting cut up into pieces and and uh, the Jeff the story, yeah. You had to talk about it. Child sacrifice. Everyone knows. Yeah. Every everything that can go wrong with humanity goes wrong in Judges. Yeah. And now Ruth follows on with just four chapters and tacks on this other narrative of how the wrong people made the right thing happen yeah. and revealed God's Hesed love, God's faithfulness and love. Um, that's why. Ruth is a powerful story. We we do we don't do it justice unless we like, look at that context. I wonder why more people don't know that story. Story of Ruth. Or? Yeah. Uh, it's it's probably my fault. Like, our fault. <laughs> we have a limit. Clergy's fault. We have a limit in what we can preach. I mean, we get four scriptures every week, and uh, some of these stories they take so much back story and and context provision that. To jump right into it on one Sunday and just do one Sunday on Ruth in the midst of a whole lecture on, or le- lectionary on the gospel, and it's hard to do. So people are familiar with the story of Jesus, so it's easier to jump in here and there. That's true. Like uh, if we just jumped into Mark, everyone's like, oh, I remember that. The widow's might. Yeah, I heard that when I was a kid. Yeah. Yeah. No problem. So I think it's on us. Yeah. Our responsibility as pastors is to provide our congregations... I believe, with a proper diet of Scripture and a proper diet of prayer. Uh, Because we're supposed to form disciples, and we can misform or deform disciples by not giving them a whole view of the Bible. Um, But it it is challenging. It takes time. Maybe this podcast is how people get a little bit more backstory. That's what I've been sitting here thinking this whole time. Like It's been about 23 minutes. That's a little longer than the average sermon. Mom? You're killing me. <laughs> it's been about 23 minutes. That's a little longer than the average sermon, but you know we kind of did that here. Yeah. So maybe there is a way. But yeah. see, we're doing this through discussion, Yeah. and ideas flow better that way than they do when you're standing up there, you're talking to them, and they're just staring blankly back at you, or, or they're cooking breakfast because they're watching you on Facebook Live or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, you talked about... Uh, quarterlies, and we do have them. Our Sunday school class uses those for their lessons, and very often the lessons pull from the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And I realize why now, because so often, I mean, I consider myself a lover of both the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, but in terms of coming down to choose a sermon topic for Sunday, it's so much 
easier to go straight to the gospel. Oh no, no. I, I, I love preaching the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Love it. But you got to do it in in a series, right? Yes, that's yeah. the key. That's right. where I was going with this. You, okay. you, you, because this is not to say that anyone, be it a listener or any of our church members, are not intelligent. We're not saying that, but. The typical American Christian is so familiar with the gospel stories, or at least we think we are. Mm-hmm. We've convinced ourselves that we are. And I think that's because of ages of being spoon-fed that in churches. And so it does take a little bit of you know groundwork. But we really should be doing that with the gospels, too. Really? So what I've found is when you're doing the and, when you're in the New Testament, you should go ahead and lay groundwork so that they're used to it when you do the Old Testament that frees you up. Right. But doing it in a series does help. And what, sir? And the Hebrew Bible is the groundwork for the New Testament. Well, that's true. That's period. True. Well, I mean, honestly, point of fact. in my opinion, the Apocrypha, specifically the Maccabees, yes. are the groundwork for the New Testament. Yes. But I mean if if you want to talk about, you know, the scriptures that Jesus is quoted and saying or in, in in reciting you want to talk about the scriptures that Paul makes reference to yeah you have to know the Hebrew Bible yeah in order to understand why it makes sense yeah so. the uh, not the Latin Vulgate the uh, Septuagint Septuagint is yeah. is what Paul uses so the yeah. Greek the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible that said um, I was going to go somewhere else with this Old Testament thing Want to say anything about Ezra and Nehemiah? Um, Build that wall. Well, see, I don't. You're making me nervous because we're we're <laughs> we don't to the to, listener that do, doesn't know this. Don't need a deep dive into. Well, Christy, the wife to whom I am married, and I are yeah. growing a son in her uterus, and congratulations, uh, you know that. But um, we're we're we had a name picked out, and now we can't use it because someone else close to her family and had a kid and, and stole the name they didn't know we were using it no big deal but we're, we're not using it and now we're leaning towards Ezra and so I'm like oh god where's he going with this he's going to talk me out of using the name Ezra but well, honestly it's not so much biblical it's that like my favorite band is better than Ezra so you know okay well there you go one I, of them see my my mom will tell us that I'm named after Peter in the bible my dad will tell us that I'm named after all of his friends named Peter so you can have different well, reasons. You can just tell everybody I'm naming it for Peter Cottontail. That, there's, there's plenty of worthy Peters to be named. Peter Pan is out there. Uh, there you go. Uh, Peter Piper picked a peck uh, of pickled peppers. How many pe- pickled peppers did Peter Piper pick? I don't know, but I have several jars in my fridge, okay. and I love pickled peppers. I've never eaten one. Wait, 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 wait. Like jalapenos, The banana ones? Bananas. Like on pizza? Those things are amazing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, you can make your own, too. All right, listener, what should I name my kid? <laughs> That'll what, be fun. What biblical character should he name his kid? We've after? already got a Gideon. And uh, Samson is the likely choice. Oh. <laughs> the way that's. He was such a douche, though. Yeah, well, maybe Boaz then. Which Gideon was kind of a jerk, too. Yeah. Well, Pick they, your judge. They, they were, were judges. judges. Yeah, they, they were, judges, they were so. jerks. Yeah. So Boaz, I guess it's kind of. By the be. way, I'm not, I'm not going to make a defense of that. I am going to explain that, though. Uh, the Bible pre- pre- presents the judges, except Deborah, as being jerks on purpose. Hmm. Because What's it shows us that God can use anybody to do great things, even people that don't deserve it. Hmm. And so, at least that's my opinion. Yeah. Um, 
So, man, we've gone everywhere. So back to this uh, naming. Pick pick the name of Court's kid. Give me a middle name that goes with Ezra, or just go somewhere else altogether. My vote's for Boaz. But while I'm talking about Boaz, let me make a case. So Boaz... I'm not going with Naomi, by the way. Okay. Go ahead. There's some great Naomi's out there in the world, too. (laughs) Being a guy named Courtney was hard enough. Go ahead. I got you. Um, Yeah, so Boaz could have easily gotten written into the story of Judges. He seems to be a leader for his community. It's in the time that the Judges reigned. There were different judges in different parts of Israel simultaneously. It seems like he could have been such a character. What is his fault? Could it be that he didn't have that fault? Well, to well to me, his fault is he's breaking the law. Well, there's that too. He's marrying. Well, he's not. He's, the, he's not he's the only judge that does Mo- that though. He's marrying a Moabite. Oh yeah, no, of course not. They all yeah do that. But I think what Boaz illustrates for us is that is this this grappling in post-exilic Israel of some of our laws are not just, right? No, that's what I was saying earlier. It's a critique on the system. Yeah. From within the sacred the doc- document, yeah. yeah. Well, the Bible's not shy about that. We were about to start opening this whole other can of worms when I thought we were about done. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, look at, look at how the Bible talks about kings. Mm-hmm. And various other human systems that are based on it mm-hmm. that it is horribly critical of. And then when you get to the New Testament... Yeah, uh, you can talk about what goes, uh, how you wash your hands. It's what comes out of your ma- mouth that, that matters. Because that's what, what whatever Jesus said. That's what illustrates what's in your heart. And so you know, the Bible's full of that. And let, let okay, while we're doing this, let's talk about this concept that you Methodists haven't had to deal with much yet, but it's coming, and that's biblical inerrancy. Okay, biblical inerrancy is the thought that the Bible is. Now, a lot of Christians think it means that God inspired it. I agree with them. That's not what it means. It's that there is no point of contradiction in the Bible. It's just perfect. It makes perfect sense. It's And, and you can sell this to people that want to say they're faithful but haven't actually read it. Mm-hmm. But the beauty of the Bible is that it's full of contradictions. Mm-hmm. It contradicts itself. So inerrancy, or and then there's the other one. It's like, is it, a, is it an authority for our, for our, for every aspect of our life? I think that's another. Well, that's a good question, question. But the thing about inerrancy is, it's a big word that people like to use to beat up Christians that they don't agree with. Hmm. They say, well, he, he's a. Again, this is mostly Baptist world here. Uh, it caused a huge fight. That's why I say it's coming for you because y'all are still gearing up for y'all. Um, but in the in the 90s, inerrancy was the key thing. Mm. If you wanted, if you were on a on a certain side, conservative, and you wanted to get your opponent fired mm. from a seminary or a church, you just said, "Well, he doesn't believe in the Bible. He doesn't believe in biblical inerrancy. I can prove it." He said that yada 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 like 20 years ago in a sermon. Yeah, gone. And so that's what they did. They ruined people's careers. They're not that. doing that anymore, at least from what I've heard. When they interview people to be ordained, they, what I've heard is that there's there are challenges to that, and you have to you have to explain how you know where you sit on it because it's not the Methodist Church. No, the Baptists. Who's they? 
I'll tell you later. <laughs> oh, so you mean persons? You don't yeah. mean because we don't have a ordination body. No, no, it's one yeah. is created like okay, every gotcha. time, right? Gotcha. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. Well, I believe the Bible is is twice inspired, doubly inspired, and I think that's a Methodist um, position that it's inspired once by by God to the writer to the writer, and it's inspired again by the Holy Spirit when we read it. I, I believe that. That's what makes I would actually it a, say thrice though thrice because you have god inspiring the writer mm-hmm. you have us with the finished product when we read it mm-hmm. but you also have the people that preserved it and brought it together yeah, it true. is nothing short of miraculous yeah i am not an inerrantist but i am completely convinced in, in inspiration oh, yeah. and i value the bible higher than i do most things in this world it is a miracle, and and what we're talking about today fits perfectly. That like the the process of redaction didn't eliminate uh, diversity of, and a diversity of voices mm-hmm. from the text. We see that you know that's in. I'm not going to make any comments about other faiths or traditions. That that's not my wheelhouse. But I I will say that I like that about our scripture. Um, and and it didn't have to be that way. So it certainly is a miracle. Uh, and, and it's a living text. It's a living document that um, it doesn't change per se, but uh, I believe that we must be open to being changed by it in new ways every time we sit down and read even the same verses. Yeah, because they hit you differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to close with this because we, we've got to close at some point. But a friend of mine, Garen Hill, he when he went he went through the D men program I think a year and a half or two years before me, and so when I got to where I was about to start working on my final deal, I asked him about his him and one other guy Andrew Rawls friends of mine, um, who went through the program that I went through before me so I went to dinner with them and just picked their brains like I am at a loss what do I do here, so they were telling me about their projects and and Garen did his from a Christian education standpoint. He was going to use people's learning styles. So he, he surveyed everyone. He found out different learning styles. And each Sunday in this range of Sundays where he did this project, he would preach to one of those styles. One was, for instance, tactile. He gave everybody that came to church something that went along to, with the service to hold. And so since he had their learning styles based on these surveys, when he then surveyed it again and said, okay, in this series, which sermon spoke the most to you? He figured whatever spoke directly to their learning style would be the, the one. Was he right? No. Oh. Not a bit. It's not that Garen's not smart. But the sermons that spoke the most to the people had nothing to do with their learning styles or their preferences. had everything to do with what they were going through at the time. Mm-hmm. And he said that just that just nukes everything, every other concern. Hmm. And so, the way I'm bringing that back to the Bible is, no matter what you're reading, what you're going through at the time, what you need from the Bible at the time, hmm. how it hits you at the time, it's going to tell you something completely different than it ever did before. We're going through a study in Acts right now on Wednesdays, and even as I'm teaching it. As I read it, I'm I'm pulling out things that I missed before because of what life's doing now. Yeah, um, and that's just how that's how that's how the Bible hits us, and that's how our Savior hits us. 
Well, oh listener, uh, there's only four chapters in Ruth. Uh, I invite you to listen or read read it. You read can it. read it in le- less time than we spent talking about it. And tell us what you needed to hear from Ruth. Maybe Ruth is speaking to you in a new way. Um, let us know on Facebook. I Maybe I needed to hear a story of how things are not always bad. <laughs> and how there are people out there who are doing good even when the... The laws say otherwise, but they're following God's love, and they're they're making choices that that um, that provide a, a way forward for God's people. Perhaps I know one thing's for sure: we've bounced all over the place today. And I think I, that's all right. I enjoy that. Cool. And I hope the listener does as well. For Pastor Potluck, I'm Court Green, and I'm Peter Constantian. Peace, ladies and gentlemen.